Well, go ahead, if you have your Bibles, grab them, and you can turn to the book of James, which is in the New Testament. It's after the book of Hebrews, which may have just been the least helpful thing in telling you where the book of James is. Towards the end of the New Testament. Starting a new series, uh, you, as you can see behind me with the banner, James, which were the title of the series we're calling The Wisdom From Above. How great is that artwork? That's from our own Liz Klingler. Yeah, that's epic. one of you who likes it. Sorry, Liz. Didn't get a lot of consensus on that one. I like it, Liz. You know. Hey, want to say hi to everybody on the live stream as well before I forget. Just again, looking forward to the day that you guys can join us and uh, we can have a full house here in the warehouse. Well, just a few things about James as we're diving into this. It was likely the first book written in the New Testament. There's some evidence for that. And what we know about James is that he was actually the half-brother of Jesus. And growing up, and not until later in his life, he actually didn't believe Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was God. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. He was an unbeliever until, of course, his own brother, Jesus, had to change his heart like Jesus changes our heart. And the story of James is pretty dramatic because he ends up uh, leading the Jerusalem church and the, the Jerusalem councils. And he ends up being a pretty prominent figure in the early church. In fact, one of the names for James was James the Just. And uh, he was called James the Just because uh, he was characterized by going into the temple many times during the week and wearing out his knees for the length of time he would spend praying for the churches. So this was a brother who was not only the half-brother of Jesus, but he was committed to prayer. He was committed uh, to the sanctification of the church. Uh, a theologian, a guy named R. Kent Hughes, he calls James, James the humble, which gives us a little clue when we read the very first verse of James. If you want to follow along with me, it says this in James's greeting. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so what we see is that this book was written to Jewish Christians who were scattered, who had been dispersed because of persecution. And what ended up happening is they ended up in all of these different areas, these different regions where they found themselves because they were not just Jews, but they were Jewish Christians. They found themselves rejected and mistreated and persecuted actually by their own kinsmen, by their own people. And James uh, was somebody who cared deeply about the suffering that these particular churches that had been dispersed was going through. Now, one of the distinct characteristics of the book of James is that this is a dude's blunt. He's a little on the blunt side. He, he's really unapologetic as he instructs Christians in what they ought to be doing to demonstrate that their faith is real. And so James is going to teach us how to practice Christian conduct, which of course will only be possible when we apply godly wisdom, which is really the reason for the title of the series and sort of the thematic backdrop that we're taking. So I'm gonna move us up to James chapter three right now, verse uh, 13. And this is what it says. This will give us a way to sort of frame the book of James and, and give us some... Uh, Give us some understanding in how we're going to unpack it. So James 3.13, this is what James says. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? 
He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, he says. And then he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In 17, this is what he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So when we think about wisdom and how much we need wisdom in terms of living out the Christian life with the kind of conduct that we're gonna be getting for the next four years as we go through this book, I'm kidding, I don't know how long we're gonna be in this book. But when we think about the wisdom that's needed, this is what we understand wisdom to be for us and how we apply it to our lives. How do we live out the Christian life? Do we just do it? Do we just gut it out? Just wake up, grit your teeth, right? Drink your five energy, five hour energy. I mean, how do we do that? Well, we need to do it through wisdom. It's different than how we might live out every other kind of thing in our life. We live out the Christian life with wisdom. And wisdom is this, it's living out moments of transformation that God continues to add to our lives, right? Kind of like waves that roll onto the seashore. That's the kind of wisdom that God puts into our lives so that we can actually live out the things that he commands us to live out that is for our good. And of course, gives him glory. So from James, we will learn that true faith is evidenced by something. It's evidenced by actions that are formed from our belief that Jesus is the loving Lord and King over our lives. And he's going to emphasize that faith is not really faith if it doesn't manifest itself in a life that can be seen and experienced by others. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, James, is going to show us to just say you're a Christian and then live like somebody who there would be no evidence that that claim was even true. It makes no sense. It doesn't add up. It's not how faith works and that's because we're not museum pieces. I know some of us are really good looking and we might resemble museum pieces like my wife, all right? But we're not museum pieces, I don't know. You guys are thinking what happened over that vacation that you just needed to say that, Ronnie? But we're not museum pieces, we have breath and we have life. We're not just fruit in a bowl, right? Plastic fruit in a bowl, we have color. We have flavor. We're not like Siri, right? We're not Siri. Siri can't make rational decisions based on spiritual formation and life experience. And Siri cannot express awe and wonder. Siri can't behold behold Niagara Falls and go, oh, right? Siri can't get thrilled by any of those pink sunsets we had a week ago. Siri can't receive love and comfort from another human being. Siri can just give us information, but it can't speak from a place of transformation. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. It's living and speaking and loving and being and becoming 
from a place of godly transformation. And by the way, we need wisdom now more than ever. Am I wrong? James shows us in the opening verses that when godly wisdom leads us, and this is what's gonna be so strange about this message this morning, when godly wisdom leads us, trials become an opportunity for joyful hope in Jesus. And it's strange and it's counter and it's gonna hit us wrong, but we're gonna work that out. So James tells us in these first four verses what we should expect as Christians. What should we expect? Well, the first thing he tells us that we should expect is to meet trials like Jesus. Go back to chapter one. Look what he says after his greeting in verse two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, hypothetically, here's my question. What if you could sit down with Jesus, follow me here, two years from now? And he said, hey, um, I know it's been a couple of years since we like sat down for coffee, but I'd love for you to tell me about how 2020 was. Now you'd probably, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I'd probably recount some of the sadness that I've experienced, some of the stress, some of the frustration, some of the anger. I, I would express to him some of these things that I experienced and expressed uh, during COVID. And then what I would expect his reply to be would be this. You know I ordained all of that, right? And what would happen is I would probably come away very sober as his words reminded me of my behavior and some of the things that I said and thought. And I would likely, I would feel shame for living like Jesus wasn't in complete control of the situation, right? What James wants us to know is that God's plan for our life is to make us complete in Jesus. And what's so hard for us is that he accomplishes this maturing process in us by allowing us to become acquainted with trials. Now, most of us are not strangers to trials. All of us have met trials of various kinds. For some of us, for some of you, they've been physical. You've maybe had to endure some health issues. Maybe you faced loss of loved ones. Maybe you suffered some financial difficulties that have just been hard for you to try to get back on your feet. Maybe you've had relationships around you just disappear, just implode, vanish. For some of us, it's maybe a little bit different. We've had trials that have been more emotional or spiritual in nature. Maybe some of us have had a type of suffering that is more silent with things that are less seen by our brothers and sisters. You might feel a level of grief and loneliness today that none of us would know by looking at you. So when James talks about meeting trials of various kinds, those are various kinds of trials. Christians experience different kinds of trials. We meet them 
along the way. We come face to face with them. It's almost like they're immovable objects. We just come up against them. And we're shocked and we're stunned and we're taken back. And then our mind and our heart sometimes goes into all of these strange places. And so James tells us something that on first glance feels irrational, right? He says, count it all joy. Now we're going to talk about what that means in a few minutes. But for now, we know that we should expect to meet trials like Jesus met trials. There's a precedent for our trials and his name is Jesus Christ. We shouldn't think it unusual that something like COVID has come to challenge the faith of the church. In fact, if we know and we believe what James is saying here about God, we should wonder why didn't this happen a while back? Why don't we have a pandemic like once a year to just wake us up? And I'm not taking that, I'm not, I'm not making, making COVID a flippant thing by saying that. Emily just read this as we were singing 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it, comes, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's that strangeness of it that we keep thinking about that tends to kind of pull us back. Peter goes on to say in verse 19, to let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So expect it. Don't think it's strange, but entrust your souls to God's will while doing good. So we look to scripture to see a precedent where God allows us, brothers and sisters of the faith, to become mature like Jesus through the meeting of trials. Hebrews 12, 11 reminds us, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So trials tell us something we know or should know about God and more specifically about the God who ordains them, which is that they have a purpose. And the purpose is that there would be an increasing steadfastness to our faith. And that's our second point as we look at verse three. Number one, we should expect to meet trials like Jesus. We should also expect testing to produce a steadfast faith in Jesus. Look at what it says in verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James says there is a testing that is necessary so that something becomes developed in you. What James is also telling us is something of the caring and fatherly care and character of God toward you in that he doesn't simply supply you with a faith and then leave it up to you to go ahead and try to increase it, right? 
I mean, that would be like giving a box of Ikea furniture to a three-year-old and tell them to start assembling or a 50-year-old. I'd probably have less of a chance. I finally got through that, I finally got through that uh, Michael Jordan doc, The Last Dance. Um, and when you watch this, you experience in some way all the pain that Jordan ex- do, endured all season long, all of these seasons, year after year. What was the point of enduring all of that pain, right? Well, it was always to win the fourth game of the NBA Finals. That was the point of the pain. All those crushing losses, all those ones they should have won. You get towards the end of his career and all those aching bones, all the bad press the guy started getting, all the conflict he had with his teammates. All of those things tested Jordan, tested the Bulls and developed them into a team that could win six NBA titles. And Casey Cook is loving me right now. (laughs) But it was this testing that produced a steadfastness. It's this testing of God in the life of a Christian that produces steadfastness. This clues us into what a mature faith looks like. Well, what is steadfastness? Well, this is how I would describe it. Steadfastness is the condition of a tested faith when a Christian meets trials. It's the condition of a tested faith when a Christian meets trials. It means this, that when life becomes unsteady around you, you don't get swept up in the unsteadiness. In other words, instead of like a flag that waves in the wind, you're like the flagpole. You have a calm assurance that everything you're facing falls under the faithfulness of Jesus. And the reason why that's true is because the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself is the author and finisher of your faith, of my faith. Because maybe you look at your faith and as we're even talking about this right now, all you feel is unsteadiness. You look at your faith today and say, it's not steadfast. COVID has made a wreck out of me. Or something else has made a wreck out of me. But thankfully, we see all through scripture that it's not, listen, it's not the amount of faith, but the object of your faith that saves a person. Don Carson had this great illustration He envisioned this conversation back in the time of the Israelites when God instructed the Israelites to kill a lamb and put blood on their doorpost because he was going to send an angel to kill the firstborn child of everybody in the land, whether you were a Jewish person or an Egyptian. And he envisioned this conversation between two people, next door neighbors, as they killed the lamb. And one of them said, hey, I got my blood on the doorpost. I'm saved. I'm good. My kids are going to be okay. And then this was the conversation he had with his neighbor who said, are you sure? 
Because I, I put that blood on the doorpost and I don't, I don't feel any better about what's going to happen. Am I going to wake up and see that my firstborn has been taken? I, man, I'm just, I'm really doubting. When both of those men woke up in the morning because that blood was on the doorpost, their firstborns were alive. Why? Because it was the object that they were placing their faith on, not the percentage. Doesn't that help you today? If your faith is so low and there's just not a lot in the tank, that should help us because you will have a glass half empty faith at times. But if your faith is true, God will test it through trials and then redirect your gaze toward the face of Jesus once again. A steadfast faith is one that goes through trials and testing and comes through with a joy-filled reassurance that Jesus is real, that he loves us ferociously and is closer to us than the skin on our bones. Job, in the book of Job, is such an inspiring example of someone who remained steadfast. And if you read the story of Job, I mean, this brother had some stuff happen to him. All of his kids taken from him, his, all of his fortune that he had amassed down the drain. Job was not happy about that, by the way. If you read the book of Job, he was in despair. He was grieving rightfully over his losses. He questioned why God would treat him that way. Here's what James says about Job. If you want to turn to chapter five, verse 11, he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what comes, what accompanies the steadfastness of our faith is that when we meet trials and we continue to meet trials, we more quickly see the compassion and the mercy of God flooding into all the cracks of those moments for us. So we should expect to meet trials we should expect that our faith is going to be tested so that it becomes steadfast so that we lack nothing, which is what it says in verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, wait a minute, because it would be bad theology to think that we attain perfection in this light. We don't want to read that too literal. But James is leading us to the eventual outcome of our trials and testing, which is a completeness in Jesus when we see him face to face in eternity. So right now, you and I lack some things. We have the fruit of the spirit, but all of that fruit is in various stages of growth and maturity. But when we read James, we can say, praise God, because we are not who we will be someday. And to add to that, James wants us to gain wisdom 
by understanding that, listen, the trials and testings that you and I meet are actually proof that God is preparing our faith for the day when it will find the totality of its completeness in Jesus. That's just bonkers. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, Paul says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is preparing you for himself. There's nothing aimless about what you're going through if you believe that God is the one who is sending you and pulling you and carrying you through it. God keeps you and he keeps you blameless for the coming of his son by preparing your heart with the steadfastness of his son. So we let steadfastness have its full effect. That's what James instructs us. We guard against impatience. We guard against anger and hopelessness and despair and unbelief. We hope in what we can't see because we know the one who does see all things is preparing us for a future glory. So knowing this, James says, count it all joy. Now look, James is no masochist, all right? He's not saying we should enjoy trials and testings or to call suffering a good thing or to endure difficulties with fake smiles and just phony catchphrases because that's worthless. James tells us to count it all joy or another way of saying is to consider it a great joy. Or another way to say it would be consider it a sheer gift that when we meet them, we know what God is doing through them. How can James say this? I mean, he's nervy. This this dude is nervy. How can he say this to these suffering churches that are scattered due to persecution? How can he say this to you? How does he expect anybody to do this? Well, it's contained in those three words, if you look down in verse three, those first three words, for you know. For you know. God's people have been given knowable things about God. Did you know that? We have knowable things about God. Number one, we know God himself is steadfast in his love and faithfulness toward us. And the proof is that he allows us to endure hard things so that our hearts become more like his son. Secondly, is we know God doesn't withhold any good thing from us, which is hard to believe a lot of times. So even though we wouldn't define trials as good in the moment, they are good for us in the same way that a good parent doesn't coddle their child, right? But trains and disciplines them so that they become readied for adulthood. 
Three, we know God sent Jesus to meet trials and testings, which the book of Hebrews tells he endured for the joy set before him. You know what that joy was that was set before him? That joy was us. That wasn't some ethereal word. That wasn't some feeling so that when he got up in the morning and the cross was a week away, you know, he was still just feeling pumped about life. The joy that was set before him was us. For us, that joy is knowing Jesus more deeply and more fully, more trustingly, more affectionately, more hopefully, more lovingly. When you know how deep, we're going to sing this in a minute, how deep the Father's love is for you, you can consider trials a gift because they do spiritual construction on your faith that doesn't make you more saved. Let's clear that up. But it gives you more reassurance that your salvation is secured by Jesus. So, Wisdom reminds us that God does nothing that is not for our good, which of course is evidenced by the best good God ever accomplished for us, which was Jesus Christ. Now, James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament because a lot of the, a lot of the instruction he gives us kind of kind of resembles Proverbs. In Proverbs 15.5, we read this, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So here's our encouragement. When we meet trials of various kinds, we also meet Jesus there. So what will you consider as joy today? Knowing what you know now about God's love and care for you through the testing of your faith. God has been revealing to us through COVID specifically just what we have been depending on all these years, hasn't he? I mean, we might be wearing masks today, but man, COVID is unmasking the church for sure. James is instructing us in wisdom. He's saying, hey, brothers and sisters, instead of pushing and shoving and screaming and demanding, remember who the one behind your trials really is and consider them with joy because it's a gift of God. It's a proof of his love for you. What if we practiced that kind of considering in our lives? Well, to start, it's gonna require us to first repent of us not believing that God has been in control over things like COVID since day one. We're gonna have an opportunity to do that at our night of prayer, by the way. And then it's asking for the grace to rejoice in the Lord, by the way, whose ways are not our ways. And in case we didn't get the reminder, I've said this I think four times, who withholds no good thing. Listen, counting it all joy is gutsy. That's a gutsy thing to do. 
Because everybody around you is going to say, complain because there ain't no joy. And unfortunately, the church tends to lead the charge in some of that. But counting it all joy, considering it a sheer gift, is gutsy. It's being like Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. It's not because he liked bleeding that he said that. It's being like Paul and Silas in Acts 16, 25, when they started a hymn sing in prison after being beaten and flogged. It's being like Jesus who endured the cross for joy. Let's let him do this hard but fruitful work in all of us. And when you feel shaky, you'll have his steadfastness. You'll have his love. You'll have his grace upon grace. You'll have his new morning mercies to uphold you and sustain you. Amen. You pray with me. God, we thank you for these encouraging words. And even though we don't know how to count it all joy very well, we know that in your word you are teaching us what that means. We know that you, in your character, are never withholding anything that's good for us, but you are preparing us. You're training us. You're disciplining us. You're making us more like Jesus which is the most joyful and happy place that we can be in. And so, Lord, we look ahead. Lord, we trust in what we can't see. We put our hope and our faith in you, even though our faith right now may be very low and very weak. We thank you that it's your faithfulness that carries us and that you will continue to uphold us and sustain us as a church so that we can consider these trials and these testings, a gift from you as proof of your love for us. You would never just leave us out there flailing, trying to figure things out on our own, but you are maturing us. You are caring for us. God, I pray that we would remember that today and that we would look at those things in our life that we can count as all joy for our good and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.